0: Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. It's our hope that this message will help you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Well, the Mayans were wrong. (laughs) And Jesus was right. No man knows the day or the hour. Would you turn in your Bibles to the book of Galatians, chapter 4, a passage we began three weeks ago, and we were able in two weeks' time to cover one verse. Galatians, chapter 4. Will we wrap it up today? Let's pray. Lord, for so many of us, it feels good just to sit down and pause and pause. The season has been very busy, monumental, eventful. Probably for most of us, the preparation has been done externally, and that's pretty much done. But what grabs our attention this morning is the need to be prepared, not externally, but internally. Not with decorations, but how our heart is dealing with what this season means, what it means to us, to our children, to our friends, extended family. I just want to thank you that we've been able to probe a little bit deeper this year around this season to understand really what it's all about, really what the season means, and really who Jesus is to us. I pray that we would be further prepared, Lord, as we gather today. We give you the time. We give you our attention. We give you our minds, our hearts. For we are told to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, our mind, our soul, our strength. All of us. And this is simply a token that we have indeed done that as we place our bodies before you now. And give you this time for you to speak into our hearts. We trust that you'll do that. In Jesus' name, amen. For those of us who have been raised in a church, brought up in Sunday school perhaps. For that type of a person, there's an understanding that Jesus is the focal point, the central reason for the season. In fact, He is the answer to everything. We tell people as much. We say, just keep your eyes on Jesus. Just follow Him. Just lean hard into Him. Just look to Jesus. He's the answer to it all. There was a teacher who was teaching her Sunday school class, four-year-olds, and she thought she would engage the class in participation. So she was teaching on Noah's Ark and she said, kids, I'm going to describe something to you and you tell me what it is. So she began. She said, "I'm furry. I have a fluffy tail. I like to climb trees." No answer in the class. Dead silence. Not a kid raised the hand. So she continued. Okay, uh, I like to eat nuts, especially acorns. Nothing. Dead silence. So she thought, "Okay, I'm gray." or brown, sometimes even black or red. Not a child spoke up. She was frustrated at this point, turned to a perky four-year-old named Michelle, and she said, Come on, Michelle, you know what this is. Michelle said, Yeah, I think the answer is supposed to be Jesus, but it sure sounds like a squirrel to me. (laughs) Poor little girl thought every question had to have the answer Jesus to it. Certainly Jesus is the answer to the longing of mankind. But we're awfully squirrely about presenting him sometimes. We don't always get it right because sometimes we even forget that the Bible has but one central theme and that is Jesus Christ. Think about it in the Old Testament. The Old Testament promises him In the New Testament, the first four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, present Christ. In the book of Acts, Christ is preached. In the epistles, another word for the letters of Paul, John, Peter, etc., Christ is pondered. And finally, the book of Revelation, Christ is predicted. It's all about Him from cover to cover. But for a lot of people... It's like going to a play and getting there late when it comes to reading the Bible and understanding the story. If you picture the Bible as part one and two, there's a two-part play. You've got the Old Testament and the New Testament. For a lot of people, they read the Bible, they just read the New Testament. They open the book, and it's sort of like going to a play late, not having seen the first act. So you get your seat, act two begins... And you begin to make a perfect nuisance of yourself as you ask people around you, now who's that person? And what did that statement mean? And what is that person referring to? You missed all this salient information that would have been given to you had you been in Act 1. So now you're a bit lost and you need some catching up. And when we talk about Christ, we have to understand that it all deals with him in some form or fashion. But to too many people, opening the Bible is like being stuck in a jungle without any roads. You know, they open the book and they're confused immediately. They see no road, no rhyme, no reason, no familiar path going anywhere, just disconnected phrases, enigmatic statements. And they really see not having any form. Nothing could be further from the truth. The Bible is a seamless revelation. It's a very staged and coherent story. And it all makes sense when you give Jesus His rightful place. Paul said to the Colossians that in all things Christ might have the preeminence. The Apostle Paul in the book of Ephesians said that God works all things To the counsel of his own will. In other words, the Bible is not haphazard. It's not disconnected. It's not some amorphous mass of ideas flung together by a bunch of guys throughout history. One who said, here's a poem. Let's put this in the book. Here's a cool story I heard. Let's put that in the book. Far from being that, it is the revelation of a God who is orchestrating all things according to the purpose of his own will. So we have, for the last few weeks, been considering Christmas. And the first week we talked about Christmas, the right season. And we worked off the phrase in verse 4, In the fullness of the time. We discussed what that meant. It was just the right time, culturally, politically, spiritually, prophetically. The second week we looked at Christmas, the right person, that... The one that God sent into the world was his own son, having his own nature, deity, God in a human body, born of a woman, born under the law. As the hymn writer in Hark the Herald Angels wrote, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hail incarnate deity. Paul would have said amen to that Christmas carol. That's who it is. But now we consider Christmas the right reason. What's the whole purpose of it all? What's the whole reason? All of that for what? Verse 5 tells us, of Galatians chapter 4, to redeem, to redeem those who were under the law that we might receive the adoption as sons. As we've told you the last couple of weeks, I decided this Christmas to not spend a whole lot of time on mangers or shepherds or angels or stars or wise men. All that's good, and we've done that in depth in the past. But to go a little bit deeper, to really understand the Christmas story from, I believe, the perspective of the whole Bible and from the view of God. Because for many people, Christmas sort of seems out of place. Go back to people who read the Bible and find it a jungle. For a lot of people, Christmas, the whole baby in a manger thing, seems out of place in the Bible. You've got creation, and you've got law, and you've got poetry, and you've got prophets, and you've got more prophets, and then suddenly a baby gets born. And everybody makes a big to-do out of the baby, leaving some people to scratch their heads and go, I don't get how it all fits. Certainly the manger scene, the baby born... Seems to most people to be disconnected from real life, from their life. After all, this is a different culture, a different time. Thousands of years have passed. I'm working on paying my rent, on raising my kids, on saving up for college. And then once a year, everything stops and we celebrate a baby. And then after that, we go back to our year. And so 12 months go by, we drag out the box of the Christmas tree and the decorations and dust off the manger and put it up and plug in the lights and pay the extra electric bill. And then when it's all over, we take it down, put it in the box, put it back in the garage and wait for 12 months. And so we're left wondering why, what's the purpose, what's the reason, what's the hoopla, what's the to-do? So we can consider it was the right season, it was the right person, but what was the reason? And verse 5 tells us to redeem those who are under the law. Now, I'm going to break it up this morning. First of all, I want you to consider with me the history of this reason. This reason does have history. Now, if you don't understand the history of this reason, you will not understand the Bible. You will not understand Christmas unless you understand the history of the reason for this. I just want you to notice what Paul does in verse 5. He says, to redeem those who were under the law, that's past tense, he's reaching back to the past, that we, in the present, might receive adoption as sons. So he compares past history with present reality. He's been reaching back, if you were to read Galatians 1, 2, and 3, and I really trust that you're going to do that um, later on today, to get the full picture. Paul has been talking about Jewish law and the promises of Abraham and all of that stuff, how it comes to fulfillment. And he says, this is who we were. This is who we are. All of that history means something to us now. And so we have a question. Where did Christmas start? What was the origin of it? Where where was its true beginning? Was it in the manger? Is that when Christmas began? Was it in the manger when Joseph and Mary brought forth their son Jesus and laid him there? And later on the animals came by and... The shepherds gathered around and the star shone overhead and somebody walked up and said, that is the perfect decoration. I can make some money off of this. <laughs> or did Christmas begin when the angel made the announcement over the skies of Bethlehem and he said to those few shepherds, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Was that the beginning of it? Or do we go back a bit further? Say to the prophet Isaiah, inspired by God to write what we quote every time the season approaches. Isaiah 9:6 For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. The government will be upon his shoulders. His name will be Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Predicting him. Is that when Christmas began? Or do we go back yet a little bit further? Say to the time of Moses in Deuteronomy 18 when he predicted that another prophet would be coming. Another set one would be coming. And to him you must listen, follow, obey. Where did Christmas begin? Well, actually, we have to go all the way back to the very first book of the Bible, the first few chapters of it. You don't have to turn there because you know the story. I'm just going to recap it for you. We have to go back to the creation. God created the heavens and the earth. And uh, when he did, after every creation, he said, it is what? He said, it's good. And when it was all done, he said, it's very good. It's like saying, I'm really stoked on this. This is awesome. This is good. Very good. Man and woman were placed in dominion over the earth to represent God. The first man and first woman were direct creations of God, in a very real sense, sons or children of the living God. They had an intimacy with Him, a fellowship with Him. The Bible tells us that God was looking for Adam in the cool of the day, walking in the cool of the day, suggesting they probably took a walk often together in fellowship. That's Genesis 1 and 2. We come to Genesis 3, it all changes, it all caves in. There's a rebellion. They rebel against their Creator, they disobey His directives, and they become alienated from God. And they knew it, because they ran in the opposite direction. And so God pushed them out of the garden putting an angel with a sword so they couldn't get back in lest they eat of the tree of life and live forever in that condition without any hope. But now they're alienated from God. Now fellowship is broken. So we're reading this in Genesis 3 and and, and we pause and we think, okay, now what's God going to do? Now He's left with a damned creation, a doomed creation. The children have rebelled have fallen to the dark side. What's God going to do? What is God prepared to do to fix all this, to restore all this, to redeem, if anything? Well, we keep reading in chapter 3 of Genesis, and God makes the announcement to Satan, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. In other words, Satan, you and your offspring are going to have conflict with the offspring of a woman. That's the prediction. At that point, we don't exactly know what he means, because seed can be either singular or plural. It can refer to one or many. So we go, okay, there's a prediction. Basically says, you're going to get into a war, Satan, and you're going to be the ultimate loser, because he gets now very specific. Listen to it. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head. You shall bruise his heel. Well, now we have more information. Now we know that the meaning of seed doesn't mean descendants, plural, but a singular descendant, a man, will be born of a woman who will crush Satan's head. By the way, that's how the NI. The NLT says it. The New Living Translation says, He, the seed of the woman, will crush your head. Sounds very mafia. (laughs) Look, he's going to come and crush your skull. (laughs) I like God's style here. So, he predicts that a man will be born to crush Satan's dominion, his head, his authority. And he himself will receive a temporary wound, the bruising of the heel. Okay, so we read that, and then history continues. We keep reading, and we find that we come to a great flood that destroys the world except for how many people? Eight people, Noah and his family. So now the possibilities of that seed being fulfilled is greatly reduced to only eight survivors. And we discover that Noah has three sons. One of them is named Shem, And one of the descendants of Shem is a guy by the name of Abraham. We discover that in Genesis chapter 12. And God makes the promise to Abraham. Through you, Abraham. Through your seed, all of the nations of the world will be blessed. So the promise goes from Adam, through Noah, through Shem, to Abraham. Keep reading. The promise is then repeated to Abraham's second son, not first son Ishmael, second son Isaac, In Genesis 26, verse 4, keep reading. The promise is then repeated to Isaac's second son, Jacob, Genesis 28, verse 14. Keep reading all the way through Genesis to to the very end of the book, chapter 49, verse 10. the promise goes to Jacob's fourth son by his wife, Leah, named Jacob. I'm sorry, not Jacob, Judah, the tribe of Judah. So we're following the lineage down of the promise all the way to the tribe of Judah. Well, we keep reading as history goes by all the way to 2 Samuel chapter 7. And there's a guy by the name of King David. And God says, your descendant will sit upon the throne of David and rule forever and ever. So that's the lineage. That's the history. That's the promise. But we're still waiting for the fulfillment. Until we get to chapter 1 of Matthew. Now we open the New Testament and this is how it begins. Listen. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham begot Isaac, Isaac begot Jacob, Jacob begot Judah. He's following the same track of the promise. Down in verse 16, Matthew 1. And Jacob begot Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called the Christ. So the promise is made in Genesis 3.15. Jesus Christ gets born as the fulfillment of that promise, sent to engage in conflict with Satan. The final result will be his, Satan's, final overthrow in the end of days. But between then and then is now. And Paul would say, all of that is good, but we can see the results of that right here, right now where sonship that was lost is restored. Now we come to Galatians. Now we come to Galatians. And I want you to look at Galatians chapter 3. I'm backing into our text, because I want to tie a bow on it all. Galatians 3, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. That the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Brethren, I speak in the manner of men, though it's only a man's covenant. Yet if, if it's confirmed, no one annuls or adds to it. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say, unto seeds, as of many but as of one and to your seed who is Christ. In other words, the coming seed, he says, is Jesus Christ, the fulfillment of the promise. Now, that's not without price, for Satan would bruise his heel. That means a temporary wound would be sustained by Jesus Christ, no doubt speaking of his death on the cross. Jesus died on the cross, but he rose from the dead, and his resurrection from the dead would strike the fatal blow to the head, the authority, the dominion of Satan. Now, go down a few verses. Chapter 3 of Galatians, look at verse 26, because it sums it up. For you, get this, for you are all sons of God, through faith in Jesus Christ. There it is. There it is. Paradise regained. We are sons of God again. What was lost in Adam is regained in Christ who died the sinner's death and rose to conquer death. When God originally created man, he created us to be sons. We became slaves. He sent the promised seed so that we could gain sonship again. That's the point of the passage. Okay, now we go back to Galatians chapter 4, where we started last week and the week before. And I know we read it all in context, but we didn't tie it all together. Now we tie it all together. Galatians 4. Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, does not differ at all from a slave, though he is the master of all, but is under guardians and stewards until the time appointed by the father. It's a very simple illustration they would familiar with. You might have a child and a family. And that child is the heir of everything that is in that family. The heir of the estate. He might have a few million dollars in the bank. But he's a child. One day he's going to get it all. But right now, while he's a child, he's no different from a slave. In that, he's under authority. He's controlled by others. He's commanded. He's reprimanded. He's instructed to obey. He's made to conform Like a slave, until the date set by his dad, where his dad would confer upon him adulthood, and he would go from that child status as a slave to an adult son. Now, the Romans, in their culture, the father could set the date arbitrarily whenever he felt like it, between a certain age and a certain age, he could say, That's the day I set. Jewish dads were more restricted. There was a specific day that they would follow, and it was the 13th birthday of the boy. The first Sabbath after the boy's 13th birthday was the boy's bar mitzvah. Bar mitzvah means son of the commandment. Son of the commandment. It's where he becomes an adult member of the community. You go, my goodness, age 13? And we would consider him an adult? You know, one of the problems we have in America is we don't have rites of passage for young people. That's a tragedy. We just sort of let them figure it out on their own, and whenever you think you're ready and whenever you feel like you're an adult, I guess you are. Then it was 13, and if you're thinking, oh, 13, that's crazy. It just goes to show you the kind of spiritual preparation the parents offered so that the child would be ready at age 13. So he was bar mitzvah. And when he was bar mitzvah that day, he was no longer the son of his father. He was no longer the son of his mother. He was, in effect, a son of God because he was the son of the commandment under the authority of God's command. That's Paul's point. There's an exact set time by a father in a child's life where he goes from slave to son. And so he continues with the illustration, verse 3. Even so we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world But when the fullness of the time had come, when our Father in heaven set the time, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those who were under the law that we might receive the adoption as sons. He says, we too were slaves, but that was never God's plan. God's plan is that we are sons, not slaves. So He sent the serpent crusher. The Promised One in Genesis 3. And Jesus' coming would restore lost sonship, lost inheritance, lost intimacy, lost closeness, would all be restored by the Promised One. Now, our bondage was long and hard. Remember Genesis 3? You keep reading, keep reading, keep reading. That represents thousands and thousands and thousands of years. Our bondage was long and hard as the Christmas carol we sing, O Holy Night has those words that are so accurate. Long lay the world in sin and error pining till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. Our bondage was long and hard, but then he came in the fullness of the time, at just the right time, the Genesis 3 promise was fulfilled. So that's the history of the reason. And as I said, you will not understand the Bible till you understand the history of the reason. But now you know it. But there's something else, and that is not just the history, but the centrality of the reason. Summed up in a single word. Look at verse 5. To redeem. That's the, that's the core of the sentence. To redeem. The word redeem means to buy back. It's a, it's a beautiful picture of somebody going to a slave market 2,000 years ago and laying down money, hard, cold cash, to buy a slave out of the market and give the slave its freedom. But notice another word. To redeem those who are under the law that we might receive adoption as sons. Now picture somebody going to the slave market, laying down the money, setting the slave free, but taking the slave home and saying, I'm adopting you as my own son. And I'll give you everything one day that is mine. So, the analogy is that God went to the slave market of sin, saw us in our condition, purchased us, brought us to Himself, and adopted us as His son, as His daughter. Beautiful, beautiful concept. John chapter 1 declares, as many as received Him, to them He gave the power to become sons of God. So now let me give it to you in one nutshell. The Son of God became a man to enable men who were slaves to become sons of God. That's all of what I'm saying in a single nutshell. What does that mean to me? What does that mean to us? Well, this is all fine and good. I'll tell you what it means. It means you never have to again be in the bondage of trying to earn your way there. By your own good works, by your own good deeds, you never have to try to get God to like you. You ever try to do that? i got to really prove to God that I'm worthy. You're not worthy. Get over it. He knew it a long time ago. I don't know why you keep bringing it up, but you're not worthy. You'll never earn it. And here's the deal. You don't have to grit your teeth and try and get God to like you and work hard because you're a son. There's a relationship. You're not a slave. You shouldn't live in that slavery anymore. But you're His child. Now, what kind of father... What kind of father would give his son to be killed? Only the kind of a father who loved the world enough to buy it back, to redeem people. Only a God who knew that in his son's death, his heel would be bruised, but he would rise again from the dead, striking the fatal blow to the enemy. Now this is the side of Christmas that is usually not told. We like the lights. We even like the manger as long as we put it in its proper place in the house. looks good. I like that size. Put Jesus right there, shepherds, wise men. It's all together. We like that. And we look at the little baby Jesus and we marvel at his soft little hands and cute little feet. Forgetting that those little hands were destined to have a Roman spike driven through them. That's why they were there. And those cute little feet would trod the road of sorrows to the place of execution. That's why they were there. And that soft little baby's head. I don't know, there's something about a baby's head. I have my little granddaughter, Cadence, and when I just snuggle her close and I smell that soft, pretty little head, it's all, I'm in heaven. But that little head was destined to wear a crown, not of a king yet, but a crown of thorns. That's why we've called this Red Christmas. Bing Crosby saying, I'm dreaming of, dreaming of a white Christmas. God says, I am too, but it takes red to get white. The blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses a man from all sin. So when we're talking about red Christmas, we're not talking about you getting in the red because of Christmas, We don't mean red eyes because of somebody who's partied too much around Christmas or even the red suit that the fat man wears that we call Santa Claus. It's the red blood of his son that cleanses us from sin, makes white. So that's the history of the reason. That's the centrality to redeem. And finally, there is the reality of the reason. And that finishes off the verses that we've been considering the last few weeks. Verse 6 and 7. Because here's what we need to ask. And Paul answers it. Anticipating this. We would read all this and we would go, Okay, that's good. But now what? I mean, it's one thing for God to say that I'm his son. It's yet another thing for me to know that I'm his son. God might say, You're my child. I confer that status. What does that mean? do in my life, if anything? Is there any reality, any vitality, any confirmation of that? Verse 6 tells us, And because you are sons, God sent forth the Spirit, that's the Holy Spirit, of His Son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Therefore you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. Holy Spirit comes in. When I invite Christ in, the Holy Spirit is also sent in. And He produces in me this instant knowledge. I've seen it in every new believer. This knowledge, this confirmation. I'm right with God. I'm close to God. This overwhelming subjective feeling that proves the objective declaration. God has declared you're His Son. Now I feel it because I cry out, Father, Abba. The word Abba means Daddy. In Hebrew and in Aramaic, Daddy, Papa. If you go to Israel today, you hear the little kids, Abba, Abba, and you go, I've read that in the Bible. Yeah, because it just means Daddy. It's a term of intimacy, nearness, closeness. How do you know that you're His child? Because you have this subjective feeling, this awareness put there by the Holy Spirit that I am close to God. He is my Father. And that's part of... Not the totality, but part of the proof that you are a son or a daughter of God. So look at it this way. Verse 5, God sent his son that we might have the status or declaration of sonship. Verse 6, God sent the Holy Spirit that we might know the experience of sonship. Why is this important? Because the Jew under the law didn't have this. The Jew only had external principles and no internal power. Just a bunch of laws, rules... That couldn't change his heart, in fact, simply made him more of a slave. Right? That's what the law did. It just pointed out, you know what, you're, you're hurting. Cause you read the list of the commandments and you go, I broke that one, broke that one, broke that one, broke that one. It just reminds you that you're in bondage, that you're in slavery. It didn't help. We have the Holy Spirit in our hearts. It gives that confirmation and we cry out, Abba, Father. So now, now today we get the entire picture here. And here's the picture in a nutshell. We started out as sons. There was intimacy with God in the original creation in the garden. The sons became slaves. Satan succeeded in bringing in darkness. But even in the midst of that spiritual darkness, a promise brought a ray of light. That one day, He will come and He will crush the head of Satan. And that He, says Paul, is the Son of God born of woman, born under the law. As the angel said to Mary, that holy thing that is in you shall be called the son of the highest. He who was by nature a son became a servant so that we who are by nature servants of sin would become sons and daughters. That's what Christmas is about. Christmas could be boiled down to two words, paradise regained. Paradise, regained. What is lost in Genesis 3 is restored, regained because of the redemption in Jesus Christ. But wait, there's more. Verse 7, therefore you are no longer a slave, but a son. Watch this. And if a son, then an heir of God. God says, I'm buying you from the slave market. I'm adopting you into my family. You're not a slave. You're my son. You're my daughter. And, and I'll give you an inheritance. I'll give it all to you. Here's a peek of it. Peter writes, We have an inheritance undefiled that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for us. Now, I began this sermon quoting from... um, Charles Wesley's hymn, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Listen to this part. Born to raise the sons of earth. Born to give them second birth. Hark the Herald Angels Sing, glory to the newborn king. But you know what? I was thumbing through that Christmas carol. I discovered there's a last verse that I have never heard sung before. It's kind of complicated to sing it. It's Old English, but it perfectly captures everything we've been talking about for three weeks. So here's the last verse of Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Adam's likeness, Lord, efface, stamp thine image in its place. Second Adam from above, reinstate us in thy love. Let us thee, though lost, regain. Thee, the life, the inner man. O oh, to all by self impart, formed in each believing heart. I read that and I thought, Goodness, Charles Wesley has studied Galatians chapter four. He got it all. And so that's Christmas, the right season, fullness of time, right person, Jesus, Son of God, born of a woman, the right reason to redeem and to adopt. Now you know the rest of the story, the story behind the manger. Now you know the plan. There was a lady who had it in her heart to buy gifts for her circle of friends. She belonged to a little group, like a Bible study group, and she had a circle of friends, these other gals that she hung out with, and she thought, I have to buy them a present, a little gift for for Christmas, but you know how it is this time of the year, how time just gets away from you and you... Run out of time. So she ran out of time, didn't have time to get the gift. So she thinks, I'll just get him a card, I'll get him a card. So she goes into a store, looks over the already picked Christmas cards, finds a box of 50 Christmas cards on sale. She says, I'll get that. She never opened the card to see what was written on the inside. But she liked the looks of it on the outside. It was shiny and colorful, and so she bought them. And she opened each card and quickly said, Warmest greetings, signed her name, sent the card. It wasn't until New Year's Day when she looked at that little stack of cards left over from that box that she decided to open the card and see what was written inside. It's a good thing she did, because this is what was written. This Christmas card is just to say, a little gift is on the way. (laughs) Oops. Got the card, left out the gift, right? Most people do not take the time to read and understand the message of Christmas. You're different. You have. We have. For a lot of people, they simply like the beautiful trappings, the trees, the lights, even the scene of the manger, but not realizing that all the while God was sending a gift on the way. Greatest Christmas gift isn't anything you'd ever give to God. The only thing he wants is you. Greatest gift is what God gave to us. Here's God stepping out of heaven with a baby in his arms. The Savior says, here, here's my son. Merry Christmas. This one will grow up and die for you live the perfect life you could never live, die the atoning death in your place, so all you have to do is trust Him and His work. And I'll buy you and you'll become my child and you'll have my inheritance. Father, we thank You. That just sounds so hollow to say that after hearing what we just heard. But that's that's what we're left with a humble, heartfelt, gratitude, thankful for what you have done. Not only what you have done, not only what you have done in us, but what you have promised us is ours in the future. No wonder we have hope. No wonder we can face this life with certainty and even face death with certainty. Thank you that... You made good on your promise. One day Satan will be vanquished for good and we can't wait for that day. But until then, his head, his authority, his ability to rule over a life without restraint, those days are over. Because of the death and the resurrection of your son. I pray for anyone who doesn't know that Christ who doesn't have a relationship with that Son of God. I pray that this season would be a season of abandonment to your purpose and your will and your person. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.